1: History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
2: This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much.
0: And if you're not a member, consider joining. Members get extra episodes just for Patreon subscribers, and all our episodes ad-free.
2: Membership starts at just $2 a month. Go to patreon.com slash ancienthistoryfangirl for more info. And as always, thanks for listening.
0: Marius was starting to gum the furniture. It's the third body they fished out of the Tiber this week, and it's only Tuesday. It's wrapped in a cloth sack, but a hand falls out, limp and swollen from the river, and a ruby ring winks on a finger. You recognize that ring. It's another one of your wife's relatives. You decide if you live through this, you're not going to tell her. She's been through enough. "'Your guards are in a hurry. Move on,' they say. "'The dictator doesn't like to be kept waiting. "'You let a jest fall from your lips, and they all laugh, "'and for a moment you've made them compatriots, "'you and these men who may be leading you to your own execution. "'This is your power. You've always had this power, "'and now you're swaggering along the riverbank "'as if you were the one leading the way to a party in your honour. "'Your father hated when you did this. "'Your father told you to keep your head down. "'Your father died putting on his shoes. "'You will not be like your father.'" You've all lost friends and family since the dictator took the city. Since then, the prescriptions have weeded out his critics. Men march down the streets, waving the severed heads of their brothers-in-law and former colleagues. The dictator praises them, rewards them, hangs the heads in the Senate building. And that's where the dictator is waiting for you now. He is not an attractive man. His face is dead white, corpse white. His eyes a watery blue. Red pockmarks cover his face. His hair is a singular red, like the hair of a body that's been soaking in a bog. A circle of severed heads stare blank and gate mouth down from their pikes. He doesn't want your life. Not yet. What he wants is for you to divorce your wife. This is not an unusual request. Since the dictator took the city, previous marriages are valid only if he chooses. Your wife's family was ranked high in the previous government, and he wants her married off to one of his supporters. She's wasted on a nobody like you. The dictator doesn't have to spell it out for you. Don't get cocky, he doesn't say. You're 18 years old, without money or rank or power, and you are the nephew of his defeated enemy. You're lucky your head isn't already dangling in the Senate building. You think of Cornelia, who's young and not vicious enough to fend for herself in this city. You look up at the circle of heads dripping gore on the marble. Then you look at the dictator who is waiting for your answer with his eyebrows raised, his head tilted to one side like an inquisitive bird. You look at the dictator and you tell him no. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. To understand the story of Julius Caesar, you have to understand the political element in which he swam. There were three defining rules of this element. The first was that kings were the devil. And we don't know exactly what happened to the Romans in 509 BC to make them swear off kings. There's a story they told about the rape of Lucretia, where the son of a king sexually assaulted an aristocratic woman and she committed suicide out of shame. This story is probably mythical. Archaeology tells us that the Etruscans, a much more ancient Italian culture, probably controlled the area around Rome around this time. And archaeology doesn't tell us what atrocity they committed to make the Romans torch their traditional monarchy. But something must have happened. And the ancient Romans went to great, great lengths to ensure that it never happened again. And that's
2: really unique, Jenny, that they did away with kings. A lot of ancient cultures did not have a democracy. Obviously, we look to Greece, who did have a democracy. But many cultures around this time had kings.
0: Yeah, they had kings over... Or they had a theocracy where they had sort of a king priest or something. Those are older ways of organizing your community. And something happened that made them think everybody has to have a say in government. And they put a lot of checks and balances up, which means they must have been really scared of anyone having too much power over them, which is really interesting.
2: Yeah. And it's really important that we let you guys know this now, because everything that happens in the rest of this story and in Caesar's incredible life stemmed from the fact that the Roman people. People were terrified of having one person in charge. The Romans built a new system that decentralized power in a way that was radical for its time. A democracy. And here's how it worked. In place of a king, two men shared the position of consul, the highest political office. These two people were elected by the citizens of Rome to lead the senate and military. And by citizens of Rome, we don't mean at
0: one person, one vote. No, we do not. Slaves couldn't vote and women couldn't vote. Freedmen couldn't vote. You had to be a citizen. Right. A freedman is a person who had been a slave, but who had been freed.
2: There were a lot of checks placed on the power of consuls. First, the double office meant that neither consul had absolute power. They had to work together. What a crazy idea. Teamwork. I know. Second, there was a strong Senate to contend with. Third, Consuls only served for a year, although you could be elected again after a 10-year break. Just looking at how the wheels of government grind in both of our countries, a year is nothing.
0: Imagine trying to get something done in a year when you have to work with somebody else and you also have to convince the Senate of everything. I mean, it just seems so ineffectual. They were so afraid of one person having too much power in this culture, in this society, that they really put a lot of checks and balances on their consuls.
2: Yeah, you're totally right, Jenny. All these measures that no one person could hold too much power in Rome for too long.
0: The second rule of Caesar's element was that armies were loyal to individual generals, not the Roman state. It would be like if the standing army in your country was loyal to your country's highest ranking general, not your president or prime minister or top political leader. And lesser generals also had their own armies. And sometimes if the infighting got out of hand, the generals would turn their armies against their country and each other. And yeah, we are also aware that stuff like this has happened in modern times. I mean, yeah. That's how you have a military coup. Exactly. So, the third rule of Caesar's element extreme violence was part of the political process. People who won elections were occasionally beaten to death by angry mobs of the losing side's supporters. Some senators had armed followers who would crowd the Senate House, shouting down and sometimes assaulting their political enemies. Not infrequently, to go to work as a senator in ancient Rome meant risking your life. And when things got really bad, severed heads hung in the rostra and corpses choked the Tiber. But we're getting to that. Yeah.
2: And I just want to stop for a minute because when you told me this fact about senators getting their followers to go and beat up the winning candidates, followers and supporters, I was like, that is totally, totally insane. And yet... This was the reality. I know. And we talk about political divisiveness now. This was just as bad back in Caesar's day. It was a shark tank. The safeguards that the Roman Republic put in place against the devil weren't perfect. There were violations, but they more or less held for about 400 years, until a guy named Marius broke the system. And the story of Julius Caesar starts here, because there could not have been a Caesar without a Marius. Marius was born in 157 B.C., 57 years before Caesar, and even at a young age, he was the kind of person that myths sprung up around. One of them was that as a teenager, he discovered an eagle's nest with seven chicks in it, a very rare thing, because eagles almost never had more than three at a time. Later, in hindsight, this was taken as an omen that Marius would hold the consulship of Rome, the Republic's highest office, seven times, which, incidentally, he did. During one of his consulships, Marius enshrined the eagle as the symbol of Rome, which is why, from then on each legion carried its own golden eagle into battle
0: marius was elected to his first consulship in 107 bc at the age of 50 can i just say he was 50 like wow in the ancient world his career started kind of late no his career started
2: exactly on time there's nothing wrong with hitting your high at 50
0: right and it also means that we have things to look forward to which is nice to think we don't all peak early Marius was a populist fighting against a corrupt and ineffective nobility, and one of his major projects was a series of military reforms, the Marian reforms, that opened up military service to all male Roman citizens, not just the ones with land and money. Under Marius's new system, you could actually earn land in return for loyal service, so it was an avenue for upward mobility all of a sudden. These reforms tied the troops' loyalty to individual generals rather than the Roman state because land grants to soldiers flowed from the generals. People didn't realize it at the time, but this was a major step toward loosening the checks on individual power in Rome. Marius was making it so that the armies were loyal to him alone, not the Senate, not the state, just Marius.
2: And Marius was an extremely good leader. He had a common touch, eating meals with his soldiers and sharing in their menial labor. When he became consul, he proved himself as a general, ending an ongoing war with the Numidian king Jugurtha in North Africa, and then turning around and defeating the Cimbri and the Teutones, two Germanic tribes who had been causing the Roman army serious trouble. During this period, Rome was racked by war, and Marius was elected consul five times, between 104 and 100 BC. That is definitely not a 10-year gap, Jenny.
0: Right, it is not. Marius was breaking in the rules.
2: Yeah, this was another step to reducing the checks on individual power because there was supposed to be a 10 year break between consulships for any one individual. Marius's consecutive consulships tested the Roman restriction against one man rule, but this was an emergency. The wars were so bad, and Marius was so good a general that the rules were stretched like taffy.
0: <laughs> taffy breaks eventually. I mean, not to foreshadow things. <laughs>
2: I mean, not at all. (laughs) Marius had an underling named Sulla, the son of a noble patrician family that had fallen on hard times. Sulla had served under Marius in Numidia, around modern-day Algeria, fighting against King Jugurtha. He was the one who actually captured Jugurtha, but his commander Marius claimed credit, as you do when you're the commander, and that really pissed Sulla off.
0: But eventually, Sulla got out from under Marius's shadow. He earned his own glory as a general, helping Rome win the social war against neighboring Italian tribes. Sulla was also elected consul, and the Senate appointed him to lead the war against King Mithridates in Pontus, who, definitely deserves his own episode. This was a great opportunity for Sulla to win even more renown and glory, and he enthusiastically began raising an army. The ancient Roman military was very DIY. The generals had to raise their own armies. But before he could set off, Marius engineered for the Senate to assign him the command against Mithridates instead, because at this point, Marius was 69 years old, and his reputation as a general had flagged somewhat, and he needed some more military victories to restore it. Yeah, because God
2: forbid a 69-year-old should be able to to bask in the glory of of his service. Oh no, Marius had to be a whole daddy shark.
0: Well, Sulla was the baby shark snapping at his heels. He couldn't let that happen.
2: He couldn't let that happen because Sulla wanted to be like, I'm no longer the baby shark in this song. And if you don't know the song we're talking about, we will put it in the show notes because should we sing it? Are we going to sing the baby shark song?
0: (laughs) If we sing it, I might actually have to put it in the episode. Just fair warning. Are you ready? I'm ready. (laughs) This is the song that we're talking about. This is the song that describes Sulla and Marius's relationship. One, two, three. Baby, baby shark. Shark, shark. Do 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 what, do do wait, do how does do it go? Shark, Okay, we're going to do it in. All right, one, <laughs> two, two three. Three. Baby shark baby shark We literally cannot do this together at the same time. The next verse though is Daddy shark doo Daddy shark Daddy shark
2: Daddy shark. Actually, mommy shark comes before daddy shark just so you know well yeah but this is
0: just, this is about sula and Marius,
2: okay yes this is their progression and then right. after that you get Grandpa shark and
0: Grandpa shark 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 Okay, we have totally messed up the Sulla and
2: Marius baby shark song. We have, but I think the important thing that we were trying to do with explaining this to you in a ridiculous roundabout way, because why would we do anything straightforward and simple, is that Marius is getting to his point where, yes, he hit his prime at 50 and now was 69. It was only 19 years that he had sort of been like the top daddy shark, and he was not ready to become the gummy mouth ramba shark. He wasn't ready to turn over his power to Sulla who was snapping at his heels and saying, okay, dude, you're
0: nearly 70. Maybe let me take on some of this stuff. When is it going to be my turn? Right. I mean, I think that that's the thing here is that Marius was starting to gum the furniture. And he well, I mean, he was 69 <laughs> in the ancient world. Like, amazing. A lot of people who are 69 are still 100% contributing to society. But this was the ancient world. And yeah, no, I'm
2: not. I'm not talking about modern day world. And I think that's the really important distinction that I'm trying to make. I'm incredibly thrilled that Marius actually hit his stride at 50. And he had 19 years when people sometimes don't experience those highs to have amazing things happen to him. And I'm not suggesting he shouldn't continue having an amazing life, but I can also see from Sulla's point of view, Sulla wants his turn. Sulla is the Prince Charles in, in today's day and age, isn't he? It's like, okay, all right, Queen Elizabeth, you have now beaten the record for the longest sitting monarch. Maybe it's my turn. Like, I'm 70. It'd be nice to
0: sit on the throne for a couple of years years before. I can't? No? Okay. Anyway, at this point, Marius had taken Sulla's command of the Mithridates War from him, and Sulla did not take this well. He had just finished raising his own army to go fight Mithridates, and thanks to Marius's own reforms, that army was loyal to Sulla. Not the Republic. Sulla turned his army against Rome itself, marching in to quote unquote liberate the city from Marius. It was the first time a general had ever turned the Republic's own army against it.
2: Marius marshaled the city's gladiators to defend the city, but they were quickly defeated because not all gladiators were Spartacus. Marius had to flee, and Sulla put a price on his head. Then, probably figuring that Marius would go slump off somewhere to die without causing more trouble, Sulla took his army and went off to fight Mithridates because he was still really, really set on fighting that fight for some reason. That was his hill that he wanted to die on.
0: Yeah, he wanted to die on the Mithridates hill. The thing is, Marius didn't go off and die
2: because 69 isn't that old, guys. Instead, he raised another army and re-liberated quote unquote liberated Rome again. And this really triggered Zella. He came back and he came back angry. For several years, these two powerful generals fought over the city of Rome like two daddy sharks over a harbor seal. (laughs) Sorry, you're just going to get all the sharks, guys. But you know that by now. We like sharks. When one was in charge, he'd relentlessly persecute the other's allies. You could walk across the Tiber on all the floating corpses and severed heads swung in the rostra. Nowhere was safe. No one was safe. And it was in this bloody, brutal political environment that Julius Caesar came of age.
0: Julius Caesar was born in 100 BC. That was the year a senator named Memmius was elected consul and then beaten to death in the Forum by an angry mob of the losing candidate's followers. In retribution, another angry mob blockaded the first angry mob in the Senate House and bludgeoned them to death with roof tiles. Caesar was about 14 when Marius died in 86 BC. Sulla, who'd been driven out of Rome, bore down on the city with an army at his back, intending to take over for good. Before he'd even reached the city, a crowd of 3,000 panicking Roman citizens met him on the road to beg for peace. Sulla told the citizens he'd go easy on the city as long as they would go into town ahead of him and slaughter all those they could find who were planning to resist him.
2: These 3,000 must have been desperate because they did what Sulla said. They turned around, marched back into the city, as Sulla Had commanded, and immediately began killing their neighbors. Sulla sat back with his army and watched the people of the city massacre each other. And when they were done, he rounded up the survivors, six thousand people, some of them from the original three thousand who just fought for him, and imprisoned them in the circus Maximus. And here's what happened next, according to Plutarch. And then the senate was summoned by Sulla, and at one and the same moment he himself began to speak in the senate, and those assigned to the task began to cut to pieces the six. Thousand in the circus. The shrieks of such a multitude who were being massacred in a narrow space filled the air, and the senators were dumbfounded. But Sulla, with the calm and unmoved countenance with which he had begun to speak, ordered them to listen to his words and not concern themselves with what was going on outside. For it was only that some criminals were being admonished by his orders.
0: So yeah, so just pay no attention to the 6,000 people screaming and begging for their lives outside while I give this very calm and very rational speech.
2: I know. I mean, what must the senator have been thinking? Sulla has now come into the city like a freaking king. He's massacring people who fought for him, people who are just in the city who might have opposed him because they preferred Marius. And now he's like, hey, let's have a rational chat. Forget the fact that I could have 6,000 people killed while I'm talking to you.
0: Eyes on me. Eyes on me. Focus. Right. It's chilling. And he was setting himself up as a dictator, which was anathema because kings were the devil.
2: Yeah, and dictators were the devil.
0: Dictators were the devil. And this was exactly what these people were afraid of. He was their worst nightmare. Sulla was their worst nightmare. And here's the thing. It got worse. Sulla then published the name of hundreds of people who at any point had sided with Marius. It was open season on those names. Any who killed someone on Sulla's list would be rewarded handsomely. Anyone who harbored a person on that list, including their own parents, wives, siblings, and other close family members would find themselves next in line for slaughter. These killings didn't just extend to Rome, by the way. They became law everywhere in Italy. And here's how it worked. If you killed someone on Sulla's list, decapitated the corpse, and brought Sulla the severed head, he'd hang it up in the roster like you would your child's drawing from kindergarten on your fridge. And you got to keep the dead person's stuff. The dead person didn't have to be on the list, by the way. You could bring Sulla any head you wanted. You could even add the name of your kill to the list after the murder. Sulla was not watching this list closely, and everybody knew it. A lot of people enriched themselves this way by killing their wealthier neighbors and taking their stuff. Here's how Plutarch describes it.
2: Quote, those who fell victim to the political resentment and private hatred were as nothing compared with those who were butchered for the sake of their property. Nay, even the executioners were prompted to say that his great house killed this man, his garden that man, his warm baths another. Quintus Aurelius, a quiet and inoffensive man who thought his only share in the general calamity was to condole with others in their misfortunes, came into the forum and read the list of the proscribed and finding his own name there, said, "'Woe is me! My Alban estate is prosecuting me!' And he had not gone far before he was dispatched by someone who had hunted him down."
0: Yeah. So basically people were framing it like that. Like this guy's house killed him and this guy's nice baths killed him. It's like the gardens in Messalina's time, right? Yeah, it totally is. Or like the
2: purges in Tiberius and Caligula's times. People were using this period of uncertainty and Sulla's need to get rid of all of his enemies as a chance to enrich their personal wealth. And if you had a neighbor who had something you wanted, well, Sulla had a list. Just put their name on it.
0: And I think it works in Sulla's favor because he was encouraging this chaos. And while everyone was turned against each other they couldn't unite against him
2: absolutely and while they were turned against each other and while the people who use this to enhance their fortunes they were going to be infinitely grateful to sulla who had made it all possible
0: yeah if sulla did decide to crack down and stop it they'd be grateful to him for restoring order so there's that too Exactly. He was kind of an evil Machiavellian genius. He was the devil, and he was exactly what the Romans were afraid of when they enacted their democracy. They were trying to prevent Sulla. They were, and as we said, it
2: continues to get worse. Sulla also redistributed women. He rearranged aristocratic marriages to his own political ends and forced many highborn women to divorce their existing husbands and marry his followers because women were property and...
0: Yep, sounds about right. Yep, yeah, toxic masculinity, our old friend. Crack a window, would you, Jen? At this point in history, it was dangerous to be a former ally or relative of Marius. And if you were one or both of these and you said no to Sulla, that was suicide. Which is why when Sulla ordered the 18-year-old nephew of Marius to divorce his wife, he had every expectation that the boy would keep his mouth shut and obey. That kid was lucky his head wasn't already hanging in the rostra. But he didn't obey. He said no. That kid was Julius Caesar. No, Jenny,
2: that kid was Julius fucking Caesar. (laughs) Right, that was Julius fucking Caesar, you guys. This is your warning. There is a possibility that we will say Julius fucking Caesar a few times.
0: We're going to say it a lot. This is your warning.
2: Julius Caesar wasn't anyone particularly important. His family was an ancient one. Supposedly, they went back to the founding of Rome. But their fortunes had dwindled over the centuries, and now they were on the fringes of power. He became the head of his household at the age of 16. His father had died putting on his shoes, which is just such a random fact Jenny
0: (laughs) random facts though they're awesome They are. Caesar's
2: wife was Cornelia, the daughter of Cinna, a prominent ally of Marius. The couple had married young, around 16 and 14 respectively. So Caesar was very closely aligned with the Marius side of the conflict. And that alone was enough to get you killed in Sulla's Rome. Refusing to divorce Cornelia was a very, very ballsy move on Caesar's part.
0: So Caesar, the nobody baby shark, stood up to Sulla, the terrifying dictator shark. Dictator Shark Dictator Shark Shark Dictator Shark This is a terrible song. Well it's not a terrible song for children.
2: Maybe not appropriate for ancient history, but what do I know?
0: Sulla issued an order for Caesar's arrest and Caesar went into hiding. Problem was, Sulla controlled the entire Italian peninsula at this point, and there was really nowhere to hide. Caesar just barely stayed ahead of his patrols, moving every night to a new safe house. Then he contracted malaria. When Sulla's henchmen caught up with him, Caesar bribed them to let him go. Caesar might have died on the run or eventually been captured, except he had a very effective ally in Rome his mom. Caesar's mom, Aurelia, was a political force to be reckoned with. She wasn't a Vestal virgin herself, but she was very active in women's religious orders, and she marshaled the support of the Vestals to pressure Sulla to forgive and forget. It all begins here, doesn't it, Jenny? This
2: is the beginning of the Julian-Claudian women really taking such a strong role in shaping and forming the dynasty and the futures of the men who would come after them. Yeah. We just did that whole arc on Agrippina and Agrippina <laughs> and more Agrippina. More Agrippinas and Antonias and Julias. And they are all descendants of this family. And it's just amazing to go back this far in history and realize they were always playing this game and effectively maneuvering in the back channel to shape Roman politics. Yeah. Sella, the merciless dictator who'd slaughtered 6,000 people just outside the Senate House and redecorated the forum with the heads of his enemies, did what the Vestals told him. The Vestals were highly respected and and while not directly political, their influence counted for a lot. Sulla had his misgivings about it though. Suetonius tells us, and this may be legendary hindsight because it's not contemporary, is it, that Sulla said, quote, in Miss Caesar there are
0: many Mariuses. Many Mariuses. Sisses. Sisses. <laughs> S- <laughs> That's exactly how he said it. That's
2: exactly how he said it. You know, several hundred years after the events, it's fine. Right. It's all contemporary. It's amazing. Because <laughs> so, because Suetonius goes through all the Caesars, which means I'm pretty sure he goes through Claudius. So there's no way this is contemporary.
0: He picks the worst ones. It's yeah. the twelve Caesars, and he picks like the worst Caesars. Anyway, anyway moving on. Moving on. <laughs>
2: So Caesar came back to Rome and you'd think he'd have had the good sense to keep his head down and stay out of trouble because, you know, Caesar, your mom has bailed you out once, but there's no guarantee she can do it again. And also, she might need to use that power for other people who need help, so don't be greedy.
0: Yeah, don't take all the back-channel resources for yourself, Caesar. Exactly, Caesar. Just, like, get your shit together. But no, no! Caesar did not
2: keep his head down. Instead, he proceeded to strut around Rome like a freaking
0: peacock. Because he was Julius fucking Caesar. Even the way he dressed broke norms. The traditional senator's outfit was a white toga with a purple stripe. Caesar wore his own version with long sleeves that reached down to his wrist, ending in a fringe. Nobody else wore a belt with their toga, but Caesar did. A loose belt. Nobody wore their toga fringy and their belt loose, but Caesar just swaggered around like that and Sulla was heard to have told the other senators to keep a very watchful eye on that loose girded boy. Caesar was lucky to get a job that took him out of town, because if he hadn't, his head might have wound up in the rostra after all. His new job involved serving as a close aide to the governor of Asia—what part of Asia? I don't know, it just said Asia—where he got his first taste of battle. He fought in the siege of Mytilene in 81 BC. He'd have been about 19. Not a lot is known about this battle or what Caesar did during it, but we do know that he won the highest award for heroism that a citizen could earn, the civic crown. This was a crown of oak leaves that you could only win by risking your life to save another citizen's life in battle.
2: Could we put a picture of the crown in the show notes because magpie? Sure. After that, the governor of Asia sent the 19-year-old Caesar on a mission. Go to King Nicomedes of Bithynia, a client kingdom of Rome's, to negotiate for a fleet
1: of warships.
2: Nicomedes was an older man, and he welcomed the youthful Caesar lavishly, with feasts and luxuries of every description. And Caesar hung out with Nicomedes just a little bit longer than it took to get those warships. So long, in fact, that people started to think that Caesar and Nicomedes were totally doing it.
0: I just think this is so romantic. It's like the young, handsome soldier meets the really glamorous older king, and they just have this amazing steamy affair. I mean, I hope that's the way it would be, but the king is not a
2: power dynamic, and Caesar isn't, and there's a possibility that it wasn't that way.
0: Well, I don't see anything in the record that suggests that this was coercive. And also, if there was an unequal power dynamic going on here, it's actually possible that Caesar was the one with the power, because Nicomedes was a client king, and the Romans had kind of a reputation of being extremely arrogant to less powerful rulers that they had foreign relations with. There is a really famous example of this from before Caesar's time. There was this guy, Leonus, who was serving as a consul in Rome. He was sent to talk another king, Antiochus, out of starting a war the Romans didn't want started. Whole Long story, and when Antiochus said, I don't know, I have to think about it, Linus drew a circle around him with a stick and said, have your answer before you step out of the circle. Like, this is what foreign relations sounded like to the Romans not really diplomatic guys yeah I'm not to say that this was always the case but I'm just saying that from what I have read there's a lot of arrogance there and a lot of heavy-handed wielding of power and if Nicomedes was a client king it's possible that Caesar would have swept in there as the really arrogant representative of the more powerful Roman state and it's possible that even though he was a king the power dynamic tilted in the other direction so we don't know but it's you know one of the possibilities
2: or maybe they were just on an equal playing field I mean Caesar was only 19.
0: That's the other thing about it is that there was an age difference and Caesar was quite young. So there's that. When is there not like an inappropriate age dynamic going on in couples in the ancient world? I feel like this is constant. But I think given what we know about Caesar and what we know about Roman foreign relations, it's quite possible that Nicomedes was the lesser power in this power dynamic or at least this even the playing field so that these two were equal. In which case swoon.
2: Possible that they found something they loved about each other.
0: I'm totally picturing Nicomedes as like Jeff Goldblum. I mean, who's your hot older guy that you would picture him as, Jen? I
2: don't know the answer to this question.
0: (laughs) I know what you're thinking. Do you? Tell me what I'm thinking. I think you're thinking Keith Morrison. (laughs) (gasps) Oh my Yes,
2: and then he would just tell him a story, and it would just be in this beautiful lyric voice, and Caesar would be like, I just, anything you want to tell me, Keith, I'm just here to listen.
0: My Nicomedes is older Jeff Goldblum, but you do you, babe. I mean, older Jeff Goldblum is also
2: beautiful, but I'm going to rock this torch for Keith.
0: (laughs) I love (laughs) it. It's my eternal flame. It's fine. (laughs) I Just swoon, right? Like, ah, Beautiful wound <laughs>
2: It kind of makes me happy to see a record in which maybe Caesar was bisexual. And it seems like what a nice relationship. It makes me think of Achilles and Patroclus. And you all know how I feel about that relationship.
0: Yeah, I feel like Patroclus really humanized Achilles. Anyway, so this rumor that Caesar and Nicomedes were having this affair was actually a big scandal back in Rome. Because of the weird type of toxic masculinity they had, sex between men wasn't universally condoned. If you did it in the army, you could be put to death. It looked way better if you were the top in the relationship because the ancient Romans reserved a lot of contempt for people on the receiving end of gay sex or straight sex because of misogyny. You were supposed to be the giver and not the receiver and the joke here was that Caesar was the receiver. And yes, we're aware that that is completely toxic and a horrible way to look at things. This rumor would keep coming up for Caesar throughout his life and one joke his enemies used to make was that Caesar laid the Gauls low, Nicomedes laid Caesar low, which is totally the tagline of this romance novel I'm writing in my head. But Caesar was was very prickly about these rumors. So at any rate, Caesar hung out just a
2: little too long in Bithynia, maybe because he was having a steamy affair with a totally hot older man who happened to be a king, or maybe because you just like the food and the climate. Who knows?
0: Yeah, and it was probably a lot more luxurious at Nicomedes' place than it was in the camps with the governor of Asia. There are a whole lot of reasons why he might have been overstaying his time there that didn't have an affair at the root of it, but we're not going to say that it didn't happen. Eventually
2: after three years away from Rome, not three years with Nicomedes because he didn't spend all three of those years in Bithynia, Caesar heard the news from Rome. Sulla had died. It was safe for him to return to Rome. And remember, this entire time, Caesar couldn't go back to Rome. So yeah, I kind of would want to spend that time with Nicomedes. At least you're in a safe environment.
0: And just a second, before we get into what Caesar did next, can we just talk about how Sulla died? Because it is just blowing my mind right now. I have not been able to get this out of my head. Sala was eaten by worms. Here's how Plutarch describes it. Quote, he aggravated a disease which was insignificant in its beginnings, and for a long time he knew not that his bowels were ulcerated. This disease corrupted his whole flesh also and converted it into worms. This is my nightmare, Jen. I'm terrified of worms. You are terrified of worms. I'm not scared of spiders. I'm not scared of bugs. But worms just, ugh. Worms don't bother me
2: but I really don't like snakes.
0: (laughs) So Sala, this disease corrupted his whole flesh also and converted it into worms, so that although many were employed day and night in removing them, what they took away was as nothing compared with the increase upon him. But all his clothing, baths, hand basins, and food were infected with that flux of corruption. So violent was its discharge. Therefore, he immersed himself many times a day in water to cleanse and scour his person. But it was of no use, for the change gained upon him rapidly and the swarm of vermin defied all purification.
2: Could it have been like some water-based parasite that every time he was actually going into the water was making it worse?
0: Yeah, I don't know that. If anyone knows about Sala's worms, tweet us. (laughs) But don't send images, just send words. Use your words. Okay, so now I've gotten that off my chest. We can move
2: on. Caesar was about 22 when he got back to Rome, and his next step was to serve as a lawyer, basically a public prosecutor. This was something high-ranking young men did to start their public careers, and I have to take a bit of a detour to talk about this. These weren't professional lawyers in the way we have lawyers today. Roman attitudes towards lawyers were based on the customs of the ancient Greeks, who had a rule that people were supposed to plead for themselves in court. In practice, people tended to ask, quote-unquote, friends for help, and these friends were usually accomplished orators who could argue persuasively for them. So, you know, if I was up for a court case, I'd probably be like, hey, Jenny, could you argue it on my behalf? And I'd be like, sure! Sure! And then we'd remember it was ancient Rome and we couldn't do that because we're women. In ancient Rome, it was also technically illegal to make money to represent someone in court. That didn't mean that people didn't pay their lawyers, but when it happened, it was on the down low. In the open, lawyers had to do this elaborate song and dance where they just pretended to be generous private citizens representing someone in court out of the goodness of their magnanimous and two big hearts with all of their spare time.
0: For centuries, up until the time of Claudius, this was basically the situation for lawyers in Rome, and since this profession wasn't supposed to be a profession, all you had to do was say you were a lawyer and you were one. People working in this job were usually trained in oratory, not Roman law. Could you imagine just being like, I'm a lawyer? just because you're really good at public speaking. (laughs) So what was in it for someone like Caesar to take on this role? These trials were open to the public and a high profile trial could be a very big spectacle. Being a trial lawyer was a great way to get your face out there and demonstrate your oratory skills. In other words, it was a great starter job for ambitious young men of the aristocracy who wanted a career in politics. And you actually, we saw Germanicus doing this in Germanicus the Manicus, right? He definitely did this. He was actually a defense attorney. Orators were a thing in ancient Rome. Being a good orator was widely admired and pretty much everyone male would be expected to speak publicly at some point in their lives. To be a good orator, you had to speak loudly and clearly so that the people in the back row could hear you. Public buildings were built with great acoustics to help you out. The famous ancient Greek orator Demosthenes was said to practice public speaking with pebbles in his mouth. You had to speak articulately, Personal charisma was also a big part of it. How you styled your hair, how you held yourself, how your toga fell, every gesture and shift of weight was precisely calculated. I
2: feel like we should try and record an episode of this podcast with pebbles in our mouth.
0: I don't think it would go very well. I know it wouldn't
2: go very well.
0: I feel like sometimes I sound like I have pebbles in my mouth when I don't, so.
2: Yeah, we definitely need some elocution lessons.
0: Hey, Demosthenes, where are you? Where are your Pebbles. So Caesar was
2: an excellent orator, particularly his gestures. Apparently, he really liked to talk with his hands, a man after my own heart.
0: And that's the stereotype, is that the Italians talk with their hands. As an Italian gen, do you think that that stereotype is founded in fact?
2: I think it's very much down to the person who you're speaking about and the family and where they came from in their culture. But I know that my Italian-American family... Do you talk with their hands? Caesar also had a high pitched and impassioned voice. He was said to have a simple, compelling writing style that really grabbed attention. People gathered from all over the city to watch him prosecute. And here's the thing, Caesar made a very interesting choice in his legal career. Instead of being a public defender, he chose to be a public prosecutor. Now, here's why that's such an interesting choice. Being a lawyer in the public courts wasn't just a way to perform in front of the crowds. If you were to defend the rich and powerful, you could get those people indebted to you. It was a great way to build connections and get influential people to owe you favors.
0: But instead of defending the rich and powerful, which would have earned him crucial political allies, Caesar took a different path, aggressively targeting those potential allies. His specialty was going after former governors of Roman provinces on charges of corruption and extortion. I mean, he just took the path of, I'm just going to piss people off. Because he was Julius fucking Caesar. (laughs) Sorry, guys. We warned you. (laughs) This was sadly very common. The way the system was set up, it didn't just encourage extortion. It practically demanded it. Candidates had to spend vast amounts on bribes and public spectacles to get popular and win votes. So most politicians in Rome were in debt up to their eyeballs. The law in Rome said you couldn't be sued or forced to pay off your debts while you were in office, but the minute your term ended, you were fair game. If you went into debt to finance your political career, and everybody did this. It was necessary to keep hopping from post to post to stay one step ahead of your creditors. Lose an election at the wrong time, and those creditors would descend on you. Would they descend on you like a bunch of sharks? Like a crowd of daddy sharks, a harbor seal. So what could happen if your creditors got a hold of you?
2: According to the 12 tables, the basis for Roman law, you had 30 days to pay back your debt. If you failed, your creditor would publicly shame you, putting you in chains for 60 days, and exposing you to the public on market days with the amount of your debt announced to the world. If no one stepped forward to pay off your debt within that time, you could be sold into slavery or put to death. A lot of people became slaves because of unpaid debts. There was also a nasty merchant of Venice-style rule where if you owed multiple loans to multiple people, they could all take gouges of flesh from your body, proportionate to the amount you owed. There isn't a record of this actually happening to anyone, but in theory it could have. Unpaid debt could ruin whole families as well because children were frequently held responsible for their parents' deaths.
0: A governorship offered about three to five years of reprieve from creditors, but it didn't offer a salary. Governors faced massive pressure to take bribes, steal from public funds, and extort the citizens, not just to enrich themselves, but to stave off creditors back home. Add to that few local checks on their power and the difficulty local people faced in traveling all the way to Rome to press charges, and what you get is a system set up to encourage corruption. Caesar went after ex-governors the minute they set foot back in Rome. And while it might look like he was shooting himself in the foot by doing this, what he was actually doing was laying the foundation for a political career as a populist following in the footsteps of his uncle Marius. By targeting the most notoriously corrupt former governors he could find, he was encouraging the common people to see him as their champion. And he was
2: good at it. Over a period of several years, Caesar did well enough to make a lot of highly placed enemies. Once again, skipping towns started to look like a good idea. <laughs> was in his mid 20s by now and his plan was to go study with a famous order in Rhodes
0: but he didn't get there because his ship was captured by pirates <laughs> this is the story that made me want to do an episode about Julius Caesar.
2: I know. This is the story that made me, like, actually interested in the life of Julius Caesar before I was like, mm, I feel a little stabby already. But now I am on board.
0: <laughs> Caesar was a hard sell to Jen. I had to consciously work to get her to be interested in doing a big arc on Julius Caesar. She really did. And then she busted out these pirate stories and people beating each other to death with roof tiles. Caesar saying no to solo and he ordered him to divorce his wife that's a good one too
2: i'm one over and if you're not one over yet just keep going i'm telling you
0: i think that one of the things i've noticed about how caesar's story gets told in documentaries and stuff is that a lot of the time they start in his mid to late career and they don't cover the early stuff and some of the early stuff is just fascinating you start looking at his
2: career from this point where he's fully formed in this political animal and you don't actually see how he came to be that animal and that process to me is just fascinating because he was on the wrong side of everything. And he did the wrong things every single time, saying no to Sulla, not divorcing his wife. His uncle had been Marius. Wow, you were
0: absolutely right, Jen. At this point in history, the Mediterranean had a serious pirate problem, and I'd love to do a whole episode on ancient pirates. Um, we'll get there. These waters used to be heavily patrolled by some serious seagoing powers, including Carthage, the Seleucid Empire, and Ptolemaic Egypt. But by this point, the first century BC, Rome had defeated these powers and left a huge power vacuum. That vacuum was filled by pirates. And these pirates could best be described as diverse groups of seagoing tribes, not politically unified, but who sometimes hung out and cooperated. And there are accounts of huge pirate fleets scouring the seas and attacking larger settlements. Oh, my God. Can you imagine like a giant pirate bard
2: party in the Mediterranean? OK, I know what I want to do for my next big birthday. <laughs> Invite the pirates. <laughs> I don't want to invite the pirates because I don't think it would go well for
0: me. But, like, let's just theme it that way. <laughs> hey, Jen, what's the pirate's favorite letter? R. R, you be thinking that, but it be the sea. <laughs> <laughs> and you've gone into the (laughs) realm of dad jokes. So, hiding out along the jagged coastlines and coves of Sicilia and Crete, the pirates launched raids on coastal Italian communities and kidnapped wealthy Romans for ransom. Caesar was one of their victims. These pirates figured they'd demand 20 talents for him in ransom. Uh, So, Jenny, how much is 20 talents in today's money? I am so, so glad that you read that line in the script and asked me because I am going to tell you. Well, I mean, I love that you think I care
2: because I'm just like, talents, millions of dollars. I don't know. It's all the same. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds
0: like not a lot of money, right? 20 talents. It really does. And I'm also the type of person who just like glosses over those things and is like, eh? (laughs) Yeah, I'm the type of person who's like, oh my God, how much is that? So I was reading both Suetonius's and Plutarch's account of the story and in the translations I had, they both just say talents, not talents of what. But let's say they're talking gold. A single talent of gold was supposed to weigh approximately as much as a full-grown human. And this is by no means a precise unit of measurement, but let's say we're talking about a small person here, around maybe 110 pounds or 50 kilograms, because that is easier for me to handle math-wise. So the June 2018 international price of gold was about $41,155 U.S. dollars and 69 cents per kilogram. So 50 kilograms would have been, okay, this is a big number, $2,041,155 U.S. dollars. 69 cents for one talent, 20 talents would have been approximately 41155690 U.S. dollars. 20 talents of silver would have been a lot less in today's money, around half a million dollars U.S. It was either about $41 million or half a million dollars, depending on whether we're talking gold or silver talents here, just to sum up. I mean, that's a big difference. Yeah, which is why I'm a little bit surprised that I'm not seeing a lot of differentiation between gold and silver in the sources I'm looking at. I was reading some contemporary sources that say that it was talents of silver, but I wasn't sure where they were getting that because the ancient sources that I was reading weren't specifying. But it could be that it was just the translation I was reading. I don't know.
2: So the pirates told Caesar they were going to ransom him for 20 talents of gold, of silver, of myrrh, or frankincense. We don't know. I
0: didn't even get into how much myrrh and frankincense were worth in talents. I had to draw the line somewhere.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I don't think that was actually a unit of whatever. I just threw things in there as I do. Either way, Caesar was not impressed. In fact, he laughed in their faces. And here's how Plutarch tells it quote. When the pirates demanded 20 talents for his ransom, Caesar laughed at them for not knowing who their captive was, and of his own accord agreed to give them 50. That would be around $102 million if he was asking for gold talents or $1.2 million in silver, so either way, a lot of money, one very much more than the other. After he had sent followers to various cities to procure the money and was left with one friend and two attendants among the pirates, most murder- of men he held them in such disdain that whenever he lay down to sleep he would send and order them to stop talking
0: (laughs) i just like love that detail they're hanging out around their campfire or whatever and he sends his retinue to go and tell them to shut up so he can sleep i know he's like look no you can't have a
2: nice time chatting and like going over important pirate business because i'm julius caesar and i need
0: a nap because i am julius fucking caesar and it is time for bed (laughs)
2: <laughs> you know, Caesar, is not all your way of the highway. Anyway, moving on. For eight and thirty days, as if the men were not his watchers, but his royal bodyguard, he shared in their sports and exercises with great unconcern. He also wrote poems and sundry speeches, which he read aloud to them. And those who did not admire these, he would call to their faces illiterate barbarians and often laughingly threatened to crucify them all. The pirates were delighted at this and attributed his boldness of speech to a certain simplicity and boyish mirth. I mean, can you imagine like if Julius Caesar read you one of his early 20s poems and it was just terrible. And you're like, JC, you need to just take this down. You need to workshop it. I see potential, but right now it really is reading like a really bad diary entry. Like, just get it together. And he was just like, not having it.
0: If they give him any constructive criticism at all, he calls them illiterate barbarians.
2: No, no. He doesn't just call them illiterate barbarians. If they don't like what he's written, he's like, I'm gonna crucify you. uh. No, I don't want to know what you think. You like it or you get crucified. I'm Julius fucking Caesar.
0: Everybody laughed at that. They were like, oh, ha ha ha, ha. Ah, ha,
2: ha. Or wait, wait, argh. Arg, <laughs> matey, you be crucifying me. <laughs>
0: But here's the thing. Caesar sent off his traveling companions because, of course, he had a retinue to raise the money, mostly from creditors. Then, once he'd paid the pirates off and won his freedom, Caesar raised a fleet, turned around, and captured the pirates and crucified each and every one of them. He also captured their plunder and repaid his ransom. And as a favor to the pirates, he had their throats slit before he crucified them. What a guy. So... After this, Caesar pieced out to Rhodes for a while to study rhetoric. I mean, to be
2: fair, slitting their throats was probably a good thing because it could take you several days to die if you were crucified, just hanging out there in the Mediterranean sun, being pecked to death
0: by animals and dying of dehydration and other things. It was not a good way to go. You might have considered it a mercy, but he also crucified them. So not so cool. Well, he did tell them that if they laughed at his poems, he would crucify them. I mean, he's got to be a man of his
2: word. Otherwise, what's the point, Jenny? Caesar came back to Rome around 73 BC after another three years away. Soon after, he was elected to Military Tribune, his first elected position. Military Tribunes were high-ranking officers in the Roman army and Caesar was elected the year Spartacus rebelled against Rome. Most likely, he was serving in Italy at this time. Ancient sources usually tell us when he was posted on foreign soil, but we don't have any details about what he was doing during the Third Servile War. So, Jenny, what happened in the Third Servile War? I mean, I know a little bit from what I'm looking at in my Spartacus research, but I can't believe that Julius Caesar wouldn't have been, like, involved in that conflict. He got involved in everything.
0: We don't have any details about what Julius Caesar was doing in the Third Servile War, and I feel like that's a giant plot hole. You know what happened, Jenny? A wizard did it. Did a wizard do it?
2: A wizard sorted out that plot hole?
0: It did it. In
2: 69 BC, about four years after Caesar returned to Rome, his aunt Julia died. Julia had been the wife of Marius, and even today, the Sulla and Marius wars cast a long shadow. Not even a decade ago, being Marius's ally was a death sentence, and those in power at this time were mostly people who gained power under Sulla. Marian followers were impoverished, shell-shocked, and scattered, and they tended to keep a low profile, but secretly, around kitchen tables, among the poor and non aristocrats. The populist Marius, the general with the common touch, was still well loved and deeply mourned. And Julius Caesar knew it. During his aunt's funeral, he displayed images of Marius that hadn't seen the light of day since before Sulla's time. This caused a popular uproar. Some loudly protested these images, but the bulk of the crowd shouted the protesters down and wildly applauded Caesar for celebrating their beloved populist leader
0: at his wife's funeral. He was really putting the focus on Marius and not Julia, but this was kind of an ancient Roman thing to do because women's identities were so tied to their husbands. But let's be real, it was also a way for Caesar to aggrandize himself.
2: Yeah, something Caesar was very, very good at.
0: Caesar's wife, Cornelia, died in childbirth around the same time. She would have been around 28. Caesar and Cornelia had been married for about 14 years by this time, and while we don't know a lot about their marriage, a lot of signs point to it being more or less a happy one. Caesar gave an oration at her funeral, which was a great honor that was never given to young women. This impressed the public even more. Everyone went, aww, and thought Caesar was a big softie who was nice to his wife. Although I don't think he really qualifies as guy who was nice to his wife because he cheated on her a lot.
2: Yeah, he definitely did. But I think of his three
0: wives, he might have liked this one best, but who knows? Seems that he probably did. Also, they were conveniently reminded that Caesar had defied Sulla to stay married to Cornelia more points in Caesar's favor. Soon after this, in 68 BC, Caesar was elected quaestor, an administrative position and an important rung on the political ladder. He was sent to further Spain, which was about as far away as you could get at this point and still be in the Roman Empire. And Caesar was
2: kind of in a mood at this time. Maybe the recent death of his wife and aunt reminded him of his own mortality. Either way, while he was in further Spain, he took one look at a statue of Alexander the Great and got very, very, very emotional. Alexander conquered the world at his age, he explained, and he'd done nothing particularly important with his life. And it's possible this was like Caesar's quarter-life crisis.
0: Yeah. I mean, it just goes to show you that everybody has that one person on their social feed who just makes them eat their heart out with envy. And I bet maybe Alexander envied somebody too. I don't know.
2: I guess the thing that makes me feel quite interested with this is like, if you look back in Caesar's lineage, actually Marius didn't hit his heights until he was 50. So to have this freak out at sort of what, maybe 30, just 30?
0: I think he would have been 30.
2: Sort of makes me smile a little bit because... There's so much life ahead of you, and sometimes the big things are not going to happen when you want them to.
0: It's just such a relatable feeling because I know I've felt that way. I just think, gosh, I'm so old at this point, and what have I done with my life? I mean, we all get there.
2: There's a song that I find particularly helpful called Mountain to Move. I will send you the link so you can add it into the show notes. It's important to remember that everyone, even Julius Caesar, had someone that they're like, oh my God, you've done so much more than me. What am I doing with my life? Everyone has that feeling. Yeah. So after his quarter life crisis, Caesar immediately quit his nice, safe, prestigious quaestor position and rushed back to Rome to kick things up a notch. And it's here that Julius Caesar goes from being Julius Caesar to Julius fucking Caesar.
0: Yeah, and we will tell you all about it in two weeks.
2: That's it for this week. We'll be back in two weeks, and in the meantime, come and find us on social at AncientHistFan on Twitter and Ancient History Fangirl on Instagram and Facebook.
0: And if you like the podcast and wanna help us out, we could use the support. We've got a Patreon. We mentioned this in the beginning of the episode, and now we're gonna give it one last plug. Come and check out our Patreon. We'll shout you out in the episode, sign you up for movie nights, and give you the chance to vote on various things. Yeah, various things like what
2: one-off episodes I'm going to cover.
0: And uh, maybe what we watch on movie nights. Anyway, if you like the podcast but don't want to commit to a Patreon, we get it. I'm also a commitment phobe. Totally get that. You can also make a one-time contribution by kicking us a few bucks on Ko-Fi or checking out our merch. We have some awesome merch, by the way, all designed by JL Draco. And we are looking to get some more made soon. So thank you so much for your support. It means the world to us. And we will see you in two weeks.